When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket Live with Simon Mann and Angus Fraser. Here's a bit of music for you just to introduce the show. Uh, You should be familiar with that, actually, if you're podcast viewers or listeners. Uh, This is is a a little bit of a tune which was made for me by a friend, Matt Cooper, who's a a, a musician with the Incognito Band, and he tried to make it sound a little bit like uh, the I Wish tune of Stevie Wonder. So that was our attempt to be musicians, anyway, my attempt. Uh, Maybe we should cut that and just welcome Angus Fraser, to our virtual club and everyone else as well who's joined us. Sorry for the delay. It was mainly my fault for not being able to work out the technology and getting Angus on screen. Uh, You'll be familiar with uh, disorganisation from me, Gus, won't you? Yeah, I'm just surprised you didn't throw me under the bus, though. You normally do in those situations. <laughs> also, you said mainly, Yosa, mainly. Don't you mean 100%? I, I had a bad reputation uh, in the Middlesex dressing room, did I not, Gus, for... Uh, people keeping well out of my way because a lot of tea got spilt and my kit, I was one of those classic students who had all my kit scattered in all directions and people kept, kept, no, gave me Simon, a, it a was, wide it berth. Was great, it was great amusement that we saw you turn up on television as the analyst when you were the most disorganised cricketer, I think, any no, of you us shouldn't have admit, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't give that away now. You know, I've got some dedicated fans here. You've just completely ruined my reputation. You're anyway, a I, well, look, I hope you can see my nice Middlesex <laughs> jumper that I've worn specially for the occasion, especially to welcome you onto our show. But a big welcome to everybody who's patiently waited those few minutes uh, in the, well, I suppose a green room or in the queue uh, for us to finally start. We'll gradually get this a little bit slicker. But uh, uh, Simon's here as well, and he's been patiently waiting for me to try and sort this out. We're going to talk tonight about, obviously, about Middlesex and obviously about England. And we're going to talk about the the life of a a director of cricket, actually, which is what you are, Gus, um, and how you've converted from playing to journalism and now to sort of administration in a way. Actually, what we want to know ultimately is what a director of cricket actually does, not accusing you of not doing anything, but uh, that would be an interesting thing to find out. 
we have mentioned about a prize and a competition. Um, hopefully, you've got a question lined up for later. Gus? I have, yes. Yeah, good. Um, so we're going to sort of test you out with sort of knowledge or your guesswork. And I have uh, a prize ready. In fact, I've got a few prizes. One of them is this, which is, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but this is a signed cricketer uh, front cover signed by Ben Stokes, uh, commemorating the World Cup win. We actually printed uh, 11 different covers on the cricketer when we won the World Cup, one for each player, and I got a lot of them signed. So that is one prize that, that we can win, sort of almost replicating the idea of a club dinner. There's lots of you out there who will be regular club players or or club attendees in some way, and you're not going to be able to to get to club dinners as much or club get-togethers as much this winter. So that, one of the reasons why we're doing this live show is to try and keep the cricket conversation going and bring you all in to the cricketing community. Um, Gus, uh, firstly, I just suppose I could point out behind you, one of the great things about these videos is getting into people's homes and finding their total chaos uh, of their the, the room where they work. I've got um, Rajasthan Royals uh, shirt up there, actually, to my right your left and uh over there a durham an old durham shirt which i might be able to show you um you probably can't see because i'm in the way uh but anyway um some memorabilia knocking around gus you've got a, a very fine collection of wisdoms there how many have you actually got is that know, just to actually... replicate your career yes it is it's the wisdoms who i think i feature in although saying that i think it stops at 98 so uh, that probably ends where i was useful uh, on a cricket field and not hanging in there for a year or two extra. But, yeah, there's a few wisdoms there, uh, books. I'm not really allowed much cricket memorabilia around the house. My wife, Denise, uh, won't sort of tolerate that. So anything that's there is upstairs or hidden. You, you used to have bags and bags of uh, kit from different tours and different teams, didn't you? What, what ever happened to all that in the end? Yeah, I'm a. I think a lot of well, I suppose you get two types of cricketers. One that throw their kid away at the end of every season and sort of expect a new lot to be delivered. I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I used to sort of keep stuff. Uh, so up in the loft, there are there's a Middlesex shirt for every different sponsor that we had. The same for England tours or England summers that I played in. And uh, again, quite a bit of kit that I've swapped with players over the years. Um, but it's it's got nowhere to show, so it's just sat in bags and in a chest of drawers. Up, 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 uh, up above me there in the loft, really. I'd love to know which cricketer has the most kit, you know, from the different franchises. Someone like um, Tendiscati, he played millions of different franchises. Someone like um, Wayne Bravo, Dwayne Bravo, Imran Tahir, I bet he's got a few. Chris Gale's played for about three or four different IPL franchises. Did anyone see, I don't know if anyone saw the IPL tonight, actually. Simon, you. <laughs> You're, you you were not convinced that it was all that genuine in a way, were you? No, 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 no I, I wouldn't go that far. But, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, amazingly, it went to the last ball, uh, even though um, it looked as if the Kings, Lev and Punjab were winning that for the, just about the whole 20 overs of their innings. They've had a terrible time of it. Gale in tonight, made a half century, but somehow managed to um, take it to the last ball. He got himself run out and it went to the last ball and then the last ball was hit for six to, to save everyone from a, from a super over, uh, you know, you're just thinking of those television ratings, just sort of keeping people hanging on, hanging on in, in India. Well, it probably did that tonight. Who knows how many people, um, how, sorry, how many sixes Chris Gale has hit. Put that on the chat. So if you are new to this uh, technology, as obviously we are, 
Um, you can enter questions, as some of you already are, on the chat box there. And uh, you can also enter uh, comments to each other as well. So it's great to see Fothers is there again. Uh, good to see you, Fothers, former wicketkeeper for Durham. I hope you admire the fact that I've got a Durham shirt there hanging on my wall, uh, which was from our first year in the uh, 50 over competition. Phil Veazey, thanks for coming. Jeff Wellstead, uh, John Hooper, so um, and, and others, please say hello on, on the chat. Um, my question is, how many sixes has Chris Gale hit in the IPL? Uh, so enter that on, on the chat box and see if one of you gets it right. That isn't the official question for tonight, a competition. It's just a little uh, beginner, starter for 10, if you like. How many sixes has he hit? It's an astonishing number. And he hit about four more today. So it's an amazing uh, performer. So, Gus, um, tell us about your season. Um, a weird season, a season that at times looked as if it wasn't going to start, but in the end got underway. Uh, you had to play a lot of your home matches, Middlesex home matches at Radlett, and had to put unusual things up, marquees and things for changing facilities and so on. So when you sort of review it, as I'm sure you have over the last couple of weeks or so, what, what do you what do you think of it? Uh, it's been a, I mean, so you go back to this time last year when you're sort of planning for this season, aren't you? And trying to negotiate a pre-season tour. So you go to Oman on a pre-season tour, you come back early in a rush because of uh, lockdown and all the things that are happening, COVID-related. Um, you sit there then wondering what's going to happen April, May, June. Are we going to play any cricket? There was one sort of false-ish, oh, not false start, but one suggesting that might start in July. Uh, I don't think anybody treated that seriously it just seemed to be a, a name that was plucked out but then all of a sudden the august the first date was mentioned and there seemed to be some energy behind that so you're then almost working back from there really and, and how long does it take to get your players fit ready and prepared for the summer and uh, again during those three months before you actually get out there training with the players or devising schedules and everything is sort of following the government protocols uh, which are changing all the time. Uh, we've actually worked very hard with the players to, I suppose, to, to look after their mental well-being. And I think that's the that's the thing that everybody's scared about or fears, and rightly so, the emotional well-being of of, of your of your your employees, your cricketers. Uh, and we work really hard by having lots of meetings, lots of check-ins, uh, some social things, doing things through Zoom, uh, and just and also training, voluntary training, so Pilates. Uh, strength and conditioning sort of sessions uh, they were out running and, and to be fair most of them sort of uh, got stuck into that and, and when they came back in July they were in reasonably good nick and I suppose that's one of the reasons why uh, the only real injury we had when we started playing was to Toby Roland Jones which was a shoulder injury but everybody else seemed to come through it well so we had a pretty good lockdown the season I, don't, I think counties sort of viewed the season in different ways some were quite hard-nosed and that we're going to use the same philosophy as every other season which is to go out there win every game play our strongest side and i suppose you look at um, a couple of the teams um, they've got very settled sides they've probably they've been competitive they've been winning or competing for the title uh, for a couple of years like essex and somerset and uh, and they were quite hard-nosed and sort of played their strongest sides and others sort of really did try and use it as a period to 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 look at some youngsters and to and to give some youngsters a go. And I suppose we were 
in the middle that we want to be competitive and win, but equally we want to have a look at a few young players. And uh, and we did that. So I was some young players come came through actually, didn't they? Some one or two talented. There's that leg spinner and a couple of batters, and that the all the guy who opened the bowling a little bit towards the end. Um, th- th- there was some quite promising that 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 leg spinner. I've forgotten his name now. Actually, Luke stupid, Holman. But yeah, yeah, he did yeah, well. I mean, again, I suppose in first class cricket, Tilam Walawalita, a left arm spinner that's yeah. uh, come through the youth system. Uh, he actually played as our second overseas player, or he played as a, an overseas player because uh, we're still going through the process. I mean, it's ridiculous when you see that uh, um, a number of South Africans are sort of uh, getting English citizenship or the, the ability to play next summer as a local player uh, because of uh, who they've married or whatever. And we've we've got a young lad here who's been living in the country for ten years, and we're and he's been part of our academy, and we're struggling to get him to become a citizen to play as a local player, but. Hopefully that'll be the case next year. So he played in five games and, and got some really good experience. Uh, Blake Cullen, a young fast bowler. Jack Davis, he also made his debut. And in 2020 cricket, uh, as you said, there was uh, Joe Cracknell and Luke Holman. And the lovely story there is that they're two young cricketers from North Middlesex Cricket Club uh, who've been in that youth system. But, uh, I mean, North Mid, when I was coming through playing for Stanmore, were... I don't know, not, not a major club as such. Um, and they've had some problems. They they don't longer control their pavilion, uh, which is quite a is big Is that your thing. club, Simon? North, no, North, North, North London was my club, but it's in the same area. There's, there's about five clubs in that mm. uh, Shepherd's Cot Trust area in North London. They, they were one of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I played a few games against North Mid, but Gus was right. Uh, you know, a while back, they weren't one of the, the big big clubs in London, not by any means. But they've, they've become a, a real flagship in, in the country mm. in the way that they've invested in young players they've played young players uh, they've supplied us with with these two Joe Cracknell and Luke Holman Ethan Bambers from there too there's another young fast bowler called Max Harris who plays for North Mid too so you've got this uh, sort of little and it, they've won the league a couple of times uh, and and it's a really good place I went down there a couple of Saturdays during the summer and to see all the players, including the Middlesex players, at the end of the game, pushing the sight screens around, tidying the ground up, and make sure and it was okay for the following day. There's a, they've got a really good culture down there, and uh, and it's lovely to see those cricketers coming through. Just uh, a question from uh, Sean Fisher. I mean, just on the the, you know, the championship, we had the Bob Willis Trophy. Do you favour two divisions or a three conference? county championship i mean it still seems to be up in the air we don't quite know what's going to happen uh next summer i mean in all sorts of ways obviously but what what do you feel about the the the, the way the championship should be played i'm i'm a sort of a bit of a geek on these things and the way i tried i suppose probably being a journalist for seven or eight years and i'm wanting to look at things quite closely and i suppose you try and understand why two divisions came in and if you look uh, in the 80s and 90s england's win record was pretty ordinary. Uh, we weren't winning many, many games of cricket uh, and and it was a real concern. So what can we do? The county championship as ever normally gets a bit of criticism in these situations. We need to make the county cricket championship more competitive. The best should be playing the best. Uh, so we go to a two division and the introduction of central contracts. So I think England in the 80s and 90s won 22% of the test matches they played in. Uh, between 2000 and 2020, that rose to 44%. So the central contracts and the introduction of a two-divisional county championship could deem to be successful. So 
England are winning games, which is which is extremely important. But there's a lot of bad behaviour by counties too in the way that acts are being employed ahead of English cricketers, a reluctance to play young cricketers. Some counties nicking youngsters from other counties. Um, poor pitches. I suppose the the, the rising salaries um, of players, which we all want to earn more money, of, of course, but uh, not at the, the the cost of sort of or to risk in the future of a county and things or putting counties in, in difficult positions. So there were some poor behaviours on the back of that. And and I always sort of look at it a bit deeper in the fact, how do you measure the strength or the, the, the health of English cricket? Is it by the number of games England win or is it by participation and the number of people that are involved supporting playing the game? And if England have won, are winning more games now than they've ever won, yet participation and and, and these numbers are very concerning. So, therefore, why should every decision that the game makes be just to produce a stronger England side? Surely the game should also be looking after itself. And and that's why I think, in a roundabout way, I come away from a two-divisional county championship, even though I see the strengths of that in that the best are playing the best, uh, to, to, to the conference system where you give every county an opportunity of winning uh, domestic cricket's major tournament each summer. Uh, so, therefore, you've got 18 counties that can that start the season, because you're getting some counties that are getting pretty disillusioned with it all. They're, they're not going to get in the first division or very hard. Their players, their best players are getting pinched off them on an annual basis. And uh, it becomes difficult for them to be competitive. And uh, I think the fact that these counties then now have a chance of, of winning some, winning domestic cricket's biggest prize uh, will allow them to hold on to their best players and, and to, to enter every season, believing they've got a bit more to play for. What do you think is going to happen then? I think well, I think this this coming season it's going to be three conferences of six again. I think just because it's so uncertain, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's easier to control uh, and to abbreviate or to to, to sort of slightly adjust should uh, COVID or or things happen. I think it's a I think it's an easier tournament for the ECB to sort of knock around and change a bit without it sort of affecting its integrity as as, as significantly. Uh, and I think that will then be reviewed at the end of next season with a view to what are we doing in 2022? Is it going to be two divisions of eight or two divisions as, as previously, or do we stick with three conference system? I'm just going to answer that uh, Chris Gale question. Could take you, um, keep you off your suspense anymore. Finish your suspense. Frank Pello says 317. Alex Gaywood, three, 520, slightly over ambitious. Will Gould, 350. Uh, somebody there, Sean Fisher, 30, 331. It's actually 323, or three, it might be 324. He, uh, three or four today, so 324.6. It's a lot more than either you or I hit, though, Gus, isn't it? You, actually, you hit a few sixes in your time. I remember that uh, that ridiculous game once. You remember that John Player League game, that Sunday League game, when we were chasing 50 or five? Simon Mann doesn't believe this, and neither does Jeffrey Boycott, who I spoke to the other day, and he said, I could face your bowling now in, with my stick and in my sweater and with a cup of tea in my hand and things like that. But um, he doesn't believe that you and I hit 50 to win off five O's against Kent. We got it in four. And one of the bowlers was, was Richard Ellison. We did. I actually, was, that was almost sort of a question I was thinking of asking, but I, I, I haven't <laughs> gone there, thankfully. No. Um, but do you remember one of us hit a six and 
it was whether it just got over the line or not. And I was it, I can't remember who was the Kent captain, but he was livid that one of the Kent players sort of signaled six without because <laughs> he'd seen yeah. this game slip away from him. He wanted the umpire to make nobody the did the old the thing that in those days of diving over the line and, and flicking it back. I mean, some of the fielding that I've seen in the IPL, we, we've seen Nicholas Poran's save diving full length, absolutely sort of horizontal to the ground and flicking it back in midair to save six. and Oh, God, it's just incredible. Which well, I'm the fielding, there are, Go on, sorry. The fielding's brilliant, but the trouble is it means that the boundaries are shorter. Smaller, yeah. Because mm. we've got to give um, 10 People feet. about 10 yards to dive over. No, you've got to give 10 feet between the boundary boards and the advertising mm. or the boundary foam, the, the rope and the yeah. advertising boards now for player safety. And it's because they're throwing themselves like lunatics there. So, yes, they're saving some runs for the bowler, but he's probably going for... Half a dozen sixes more a summer because of it. Yeah. Here's a question from uh, Jeff. I think it's Jeff Steed. Uh, the email address is Jeff Willsteed. But can we expect great things from, you know, with your Middlesex hat on? Can we expect great things from Master Atherton now that he has a, a Middlesex <laughs> contract? Uh, Mike Atherton's son, um, who, who plays for you, he just signed a contract for you. It's difficult, isn't it, where at a young age um, and batsmen develop, I mean, cricketers develop at, at different ages. You, know, you can look at some at 17 and think, oh, they're going to be a you know, world beater and they've fallen away by the time they're 22. And someone's a slow start at 20, you think, not sure. And then by the time they're 24, they're a test cricketer. Uh, do we, I mean, you probably don't want to put pressure on him, but w what do you feel about him? It's Josh, oh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah he's, he's bigger than his dad. He got a Josh DeCarries, he is, of course, isn't he? Not, not Josh Atherton, Josh DeCarries. Yeah. That's his mother's surname. Yeah, that's right. He's got a few more shots than his dad. He can hit well, the ball. wouldn't be hard. Yeah, he can hit the ball in the V rather than the A, which was Atherton's scoring <laughs> sort of zone, wasn't it? <laughs> um, actually, it's funny when we've had conversations. I said, yeah, because yeah. Atherton, he dropped me more. He's, everybody said he's his best mate, but he dropped me for England more than anybody else when he was England captain. <laughs> that would have been always, a good question, actually. Yeah. It's always a, it was a gut feel. It's a gut feel. And I feel like, well, I can now reverse the role and leave his son out on a gut feel. <laughs> <laughs> what power, what power you have. No, and actually, he's, that, a, he's a cracking young, he's a really, he's a really nice kid. Um, and he can play. He's, he's I mean, it, it's one of those ones we used this period again, because, I mean, sadly, the volume of cricket played by uh, cricketers at every level was restricted. And we said, well, how can we give our academy lads, the best of our academy lads, something worldwide, worthwhile? So we got them involved in all our training sessions and they were up at Radlett working and, 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 and in the next place in the first team. And uh, he stood up very well in those in those training sessions and made a positive impression on Stuart Law. Um, so, and, I, I, and it's that, sadly... I mean, the financial repercussions of what's taken place and what may be taking place over the next 12 months or so are going to have an effect on the game. And the counties have got to, which I'm perfectly happy with, have got to look from within to produce young cricketers. So getting someone like Josh involved, uh, who has definitely got something about him at this moment mm. in time, was a very easy decision. Chris Williams says, I'm um, just arming on the, the, the county system and young players and just taking it on a bit. Does does Gus see any merit in having a, a transfer market in the county game? I mean, do you mean actually paying transfer fees, Chris? I mean, I, don't, I mean, is that really feasible in county cricket? Is the money there anymore? Not at the moment. I think 
before COVID, you could have argued that because um, there was there was a uh, well, the counties were getting bigger distributions than they've ever got before. The one the one area that, and I suppose, and it's <laughs> without having a go at Gloucestershire, um, which but, is Simon's county. Yeah, so watch out. That, that's, I'm I'm very aware of that. Um, but if counties are sniffing, some counties are sniffing around and, and looking at your young cricketers as saying, I they can give them opportunities that maybe some counties, other counties can't at that moment in time. I think certainly with young cricketers, um, if you're they've come, you're through your loose system, you've developed them, you spend seven or eight years uh, getting to, into a position where they're a, they've got a first or a county contract. I think there should be something that uh, some compensation that is given then if you're losing a young a, an 18, 19, 21 year old uh, or someone like that who you've invested in quite a lot, and at that moment in time you can't offer him the opportunities because of the makeup of your side that another county can. So I think something should be done there. And again, I suppose if you've got a player with one year left on his contract, the county just the compensation could easily be the value of that contract because that's his value to yourselves, isn't it? Really? It's interesting, actually, that the, the book I've written with Manoj Badali about the, 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 the IPL and the, the future of the game, um, there's a story in there actually about the the way that the Rajasthan Royals brought on a lot of young players. And one of them was Ravi Jadeja who you know, was just an 18-year-old, and Shane Warner's captain saw him and saw the potential to be a brilliant finisher and a you know, bowler and all-rounder, brilliant fielder. And uh, after about three years of playing for the Royals, um, the Chennai Super King spotted his ability, offered him and his family jobs for life, and he, he, you know, sort of pit-poached him. And they had no, the Royals had no comeback on that, even though they'd invested three or four years of his youth to really develop him. I mean, it's a it's a tough one. That Andy Fothergill, I must uh, I must ask you a, a question that he's posted. Fothers, thanks for your participation. As I said before, he says to you, Gus, which batsman did you feel you could never get out? <laughs> well, there are a few. Um, well, <laughs> I suppose the best player that I've ever bowled at was Brian Lara. I mean, I think he's the greatest cricket that I played against. I mean, Shane Warne never got me out. I mean, I think he was overrated actually. Um, but uh, <laughs> I would, yeah, I Lara was the best player. I Interestingly, hate to Michael Slater, that right. he was, I mean, because he, he just teed it. off and yeah, he went for from the start and, and put you under a lot of pressure. It's interesting your answer, Brian Lara, though, because I looked up your um list of wickets, test wickets, 177 test wickets at 27, and actually your test average was slightly lower than your. First class average, interestingly, with the ball. Um, but your leading dismissal is Lara. You've got him seven times in 15 attempts. So although maybe some of that was for 349 or something rather than, <laughs> than, than for 12, but still it counts. No, that was Andy, that was Andy Caddick. Caddick got him out for 375 and went running down the pitch like that as though we'd just taken a hat trick. And we said, Caddick, it's not your stage, this one. I think it's gone past that. <laughs> what did you say to Lara famously when you went past the edge when it was, when he was on about three hundred and twenty? Well, I can't use exact language. Family, here, family but, show. But it was along the lines of, "I can't. I suppose I can't call you a lucky so and so when you're on three hundred and twenty, can I? Because <laughs> he played a mister me twice in and over. Um, but so Lara, Michael Slater, too good to. Well, I mean, Slater just looked so quite intimidating, actually. But at the same time, he was a bit frenetic, whereas someone like Matthew Hayden 
was genuinely yeah. intimidating. Yeah, he but, was horrible. He but, was, but, but at least with Slater, you felt you had a chance, I suppose. I remember I used to, I sledged him once, and that was a waste of time. Um, I say sledging me. I mean, he Hayden. was in a grip. No, Slater. I mean, he was a little fella, Michael Slater, wasn't he? But he yeah. And in the West Indies, they call sloggers cane cutters, don't they? Because you're going out. So I just kept calling him a cane cutter when he was edging one through slip and stuff like this. And all of a sudden, he's just, I've overpitched one slightly six inches outside of stump, and he's just moosed it over mid off one bounce into the advertising boards and I'm sort of walking back to my mark and all of a sudden I'm aware of this sort of presence under my armpit and it was him and he's looking at me and I said, what are you looking at? He said, just cutting another bit of cane, mate, and walked away. <laughs> Good line. Yeah, didn't work. Alex Gaywood says, um, in, the, in the 90s, I mean, you play, what do you play, Gus? 46 test matches? Um, you know, you were, you were you talk about being dropped by others a few times, and you had gaps out of the team. How, how much would you have benefited from central contracts? His question actually is, who do you think would have benefited most from a, a sort of more stable selection process and central contracts that we saw in the the two thousands? Who would have benefited most in the in the in the nineteen nineties when you were playing? Well, I think you look at, I mean. Simon and I could probably look at someone like Mike Rambrakesh. I think he would have benefited hugely from that sort of backing and support rather than uh, coming into an England side that sort of the selection was a bit, not random, but it was certainly if you didn't perform for a game or two, you thought you were going to get dropped, that's for sure. I mean, I think bowlers, I think I would have benefited hugely. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I'm happy I played when I played. I mean, whilst the money, the, the sort of, the opportunities now are far greater than they were when, when I was sort of playing in the 90s. But it's not a nice place to be a lot of the time. The, the way that your game is forensically looked over by the analyst, um, the way that yes. social media sort of reacts and, and how, that, how, that, how that all goes. I, it, it's, it's, it's tough now. I mean, you, you do get what you earn. You earn your money in many ways because of the the things you, that, that you put through. So it was nice to play when we played in the way that there was a, you could have a bit of fun, you could be a fool and you could get away with it really, whereas you can't get away with anything now. And, and Stuart Law, who we had on this podcast a, a while ago, our uh, audio podcast, um, talking about mental health of players and the stresses that they experience now. I mean, he talked and he's the Middlesex coach, of course, so he, and he's also coached Bangladesh and the West Indies and you know, had a lot of experience. And he said that, you know, the, the trouble with the modern player is they go straight to social media as soon as they come off the field, look at their Twitter and, you know, Instagram accounts and so on. The the criticism that you get on that, which is inevitable if you have a bad day, is is hard to handle, even though you know that you, you in yourself may feel confident that it, you had a bad day, but you can recover tomorrow. It, it gets home to you, it hits home to you, doesn't it? Yeah. When I my mum said to me, towards the back end of my England career. She said, when you play, first played for England, I was the proudest mum in the world, but now I can't wait for it to end. Just because of the them living it, they they take... I mean, it is your parents and your family that are more upset by the insults and the criticism than you are. And again, we go, you go into a dressing room or you sit there some days and you see players in tears at the back. And a lot of it is social media, what's being said, and you... The families, the mothers, they're really upset because some of the criticism and some of the things that are said in social media are horrible. Mm. And you, you don't sign up for that when you, I mean, you're 18, you sign a professional contract. 
you're starting to make your way as a player. And, and I mean, these, some of these are members of Middlesex as well. I mean, the, the way they talk about people. I mean, I don't do social media because I couldn't trust myself. Uh, I'd tell someone their fortune straight away and be in front of a disciplinary board and, 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 and told off. So I, I don't do it because I wouldn't take what people say um, and I'd react and, and, and tell them exactly what I thought of them. As director of cricket then, Gus, I mean, would you advise players to you know, not be on social media and say, actually, you, know, you, you think it's a good thing and everyone else is doing it, but actually it is only going to be damaging. Do you have that you conversation do. with them? Yes, you do. Um, you equally tell them not to hook and do stupid things like that, but they still do it, don't they? And, and <laughs> come running down the wicket to a left-arm spinner when it's turning. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they can't help. I mean, it, it's it's part of their lives now, isn't it? And it's very difficult. Uh, again, you look at you, higher up the... Look, we've got a special guest. System. Oh, Look at that. I thought I'd just get him on <laughs> just for he a few minutes. He looks as happy as ever. Look, Look at that. I've been, try- I've been trying to work it out for the last half hour. <laughs> well, so, watching, this is, like, ladies and gentlemen, my IT's not the best. His IT is not the best. Um, actually, you look quite smart, though. In fact, you look like a, a, a traffic, air traffic controller there. You look as if you're going to, you know, call in a few planes coming into land it looks, it looks very smart john embry of course for everyone who uh, isn't familiar with the the great the grayness of the beard and well the, the, the boiler's um, gone it's a bit cold here the boiler's gone down oh brilliant um i i just it's great thank you very much for joining us uh, embers and uh, i thought one of the reasons i just wanted you to come on really was that you and gus together were such a a, a familiar and um caustic pair Miserable. who loved each other but you were always at each other as well and yeah. i don't know what it was that you know because you had you both had the highest adopted the highest standards expected the highest standards and there was this mutual respect and yet there was a mutual kind of antagonism always went on as well no i think respect is the key i think respect each other's ability and 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 the skills that they brought to the game um and the dressing room at Middlesex was always a caustic one, even under Mike Brearley um, and then into Gat. And what Mike Brearley encouraged in the dressing room was a lot of people to voice their opinions, which um, when I first joined Middlesex, that wasn't the case with a lot of the older and senior players in the side. And I think Brearley allowed that to, he encouraged that. And that continued on for the first 12 years of my career at Middlesex until Gat took over, and and it was just it, then they just took over, and then we then younger players came along, and I think everything became a little bit more liberal, um, and then you know you had you had people with lots more opinions than what we probably did, and and I think the generation when Gus came along in the mid early 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 part of the eighties with several other players, um, Tuffers and Ramps, and a young lad called Jamie Sykes. Jamie Sykes and Tuffers <laughs> reminded me of Gordon Gatting actually. Um, when they when they first came into the dressing room in 1975, so got Ian um, Gould and Mike Gatting, yeah. Oh, absolutely, and and you know it was it was great because it was just a change of environment and everything was a bit breezy. Everyone, all of a sudden, you felt like you 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 were a dressing room, and everyone was making a contribution. Um, and Mike really worked that very well. Mm. Um, you know, he he controlled it. He let go what he wanted to let go. 
um, monitored the individuals that might have been a little bit caustic in, in, in what they were in a dressing room. But actually, it was a very open dressing room. And, and a lot of people criticised Middlesex, say we argued on the field a lot. But what happened is we weren't always happy with each other's performance in the field. If there was someone that didn't make an effort, then that would be sorted out at lunchtime or tea time. And there'd be a lot of words said. And whatever person or player that that aggression was aimed at, um, if he answered back, it was backed up by several other members in the side so that the player knew that, you know, he was out of order. And although it could get very aggressive in the dressing room, I think the great thing with Breers and Gat is that that anger in the dressing room didn't fester. That anger got taken onto the cricket field and then was channeled, was, um, channeled into the opposition and not, mm. not ourselves. And actually, it, it worked very well for us. I'm not too sure that that would work well for a lot of other sides. And I remember one or two other players that came to Middlesex. I mean, Kevin Shine coming from Hampshire to join us before going to Somerset found our dressing room. Um, he he couldn't so, believe to, what was said and the criticism of yeah. senior players by younger players. Mm. Um, he, he found that extraordinary. He thought that senior players were sacrosanct and that's it. You couldn't say anything. But in our dressing room, you know, everything went. I think actually that's an interesting point. And the, there's a bit, there was a transition, I suppose, probably just sort of after I retired anyway, um, sort of mid-90s. And now, Gus, you probably can't have those sort of blunt, you know, you and Embers sort of having a go at each other, although there was mutual respect, um, that, that, you, that, that that kind of environment can't exist now because people are much more sensitive, I suppose. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I'd say that. And I think all coaches have had to sort of modify the way that they look after players. I mean, if you look at Premier League football, football you'd say that your Pochettinos, your Klopps, um, I'm trying to think of... Uh, the Man City manager Guardiola, Guardiola they're yeah. sort of looked on as, as as sort of exceptional coaches, and they're very much working with the players. They're tough, and I think if the players cross them, then they're out the door quite quickly. But your sort of Mourinho, who balls your players out, he looks a bit more of a dinosaur in comparison to, to to them in the way that you're treating players. And yeah, the days of going in there and tearing a strip off players now is is very difficult. I remember we went down to Tottenham. Uh, took our coaches down down to Tottenham to sort of watch how they train and to see their facilities a few years ago. And Harry Redknapp was in charge there. And he was going on about this. And he'd sort of had a go at one of his players during half time because he didn't feel he'd been pulling his weight. Uh, and 20 minutes after the match finished, he, the player's agent's on the phone telling him he can't speak to his player, his, his, his player like that. And you're sort of thinking, where does he go with that sort of um, mm. reaction? Because, yeah, you, I say, Anything that you say now gets out and people have social media and, and things like that. So, uh, you, one, you shouldn't be abuse, uh, verbally abusing or, or, or sort of making members of your workforce look foolish in front of, uh, of other people. But sometimes they do need a kick and it's, it's, it's how you do it. Actually, the only way you can actually um, give a, a, an individual the kick that they need now is through selection. You just mm. you, you don't pick them. You, it's that's that's right. the only way that you can tell them what they're doing is not good enough in a in a forceful way. Uh, I was going to say to Gus, when you were a journalist, journalist Gus, how, how easy did you find, or how difficult did you find it as an ex-player to be critical? I don't mean you know overtly critical and just slamming a player, but to 
you know that those seven years when you spent as cricket correspondent at the Independent I mean, was that was that a huge change for you to go from playing to then writing about playing and having to make a, a judgment on a player or a match or whatever or a team. I think a little bit. There were a few times when I felt a bit guilty. I, you know, when you push to a deadline and you've got to get it down and yeah. you, you haven't got the, the time to sort of con- truly consider what you've said. And sometimes they can actually be the best pieces you write because you just write what you're saying. You've got 20 minutes to get 600 words down or whatever, and you've just got to go for it. Um, but more often than not, I was quite comfortable because I tried to be reasoned and and and, and think about, all angles where they've come from and have they got it wrong so if i was if i was critical i was normally quite comfortable i got picked up a few times by some of the players um michael vaughan on a couple of occasions but you're not going to keep everybody happy all the time i how did you deal with that what when when vaughan came up to you and said oh i didn't like that what, what did he say to him if if his argument had some merit then i'd reason with it if not i'd say i don't i don't i don't sort of agree with where you're coming from there Actually, I got so used to, you know, players coming up to me going, I thought you were my mate when I wrote something slightly critical, that uh, I was once um, driving back from a t- test match, Trent Bridge, having done the TV, and my phone went at sort of 11 o'clock at night. And it was a it was an Australian voice. And I thought, oh, God, you know, it's some another criticism. Um, uh, it was a player sort of phoning up saying, oh, you've slagged me off, mate. Why did you do that? And I, I said, who's this on the other end? And he said, it's Shane Watson. I said, Oh God. Okay. Um, what, what have I said? What have I said about you kind of getting your pads in the way LBW all the time and things? He said, no, no, mate, I'll, I want some advice. I said, what? He said, I, I can't convert from 50 to a hundred. And he said, you study the game, you study the game. You talk to loads of batsmen and I just wanted to know what you think. And I thought it was a total wind up, but actually he was, he was genuine. He wanted some advice about how to convert from 50 to a hundred. So well, I've only made 100, um, I've only made 100 and that was for school, but, and I sort of passed on a few ideas that I'd picked up from talking to, you know, KP or Cook or somebody like that. Uh, but you, you, players are incredibly sensitive, aren't they? And I, I think that, I don't, do you think Embers, do you think, well, I, I've, I've got one other question actually. Do you think that therefore in this modern environment, I would have been able to sue someone who said to me when I walked in, to the photo call in 1991 when my wife had just decided to leave me for another man and I said why I was late because of this sort of situation with my wife and someone said, well, you're not exactly Richard Gere, are you? Do you think maybe I could have sued that person now? <laughs> or that maybe it was a f- f- totally justifiable remark? I think... I would, Yozza, what I would, the, 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 one, um, the, one, the one time you were late when you blamed the fact that you'd had three punches going to Worcester with Bill Edmonds' kit in the back of your car. Yeah, that's true. You weren't totally honest there, though, were you? I Well, it was, it was only one puncture. <laughs> but it was true, actually. And that, that I had, no, I had Mike Gatting and John Embers. Embers, I had Embers' gear oh, was it in Embers? my car. Yeah, and it was the captain and vice captain. And I turned up at one o'clock for a televised game and got had to toss up in his suit, which wasn't good. <laughs> So, oh dear. So, give us a little bit of a sense of your relationship, you two, um, Fraser, Fraser and Embry. You were kind of, you know, you were at each other quite a bit, but there was that mutual respect. And there's, you know, I remember no. coming off the field at times, and you know, one would say, "Oh, you, you didn't do anything at slip all day." Gus would say, and Embers would say, "Well, if you bent your back, I might have had a chance or something." You know, so it went like that well, a bit. I think, 
I think it's an interesting point where Angus brought up actually quite a few years, few years after I'd finished was that I always complained that Angus Bold, his, his spells were too long. And I felt that there are times in a match that I should be bowling um, when the wicket was turning and I wanted to get hold of the ball and it was a little bit harder and had a nice seam on the, on the, on the ball. And I, Angus's argument was that, you know, if once he came off, he, was, he felt that he wasn't going to get back on to bowl again because when I came on to bowl, I would be bowling majority of the day. And I never saw it that way. I just probably on a, on a more personal thing um, saw it that I was I was the one that should felt that I should have been bowling the situation, um, the match situation, and not Angus. And there'd be other times when when I would bowl and I felt well, I'm not I'm, I don't look like getting a wicket here. I feel as if the batsmen are milking me, and I wasn't I wasn't looking as though I was being penalised enough. And I go up to Gat and say, look, Gat, I I don't think I'm doing a particularly good job here in terms of keeping it tight I don't feel as if or I don't look as though I'm getting a wicket they look to be milking me and I would say to Gat look take me off for 20 minutes bring me on Rubbish. the other end but 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 take me off um and and I did used to say that to Gat um but Angus because we bowled at the same end at the pavilion end would would you know his answer was well if if I come off I'm not going to get back on again which is you know we're all there as bowlers you bowl to get wickets you know I played cricket to get wickets score runs and take catches you didn't you you played you bowled to bloody bowl maidens most of the time well that I, I wasn't a big spinner of the ball so I couldn't just bloody bowl here there and everywhere I got twatted all over the place so therefore <laughs> you- I had to rely on the skills and the strengths that I had, which is control over line and length, and I would set my fields accordingly. I could have a couple of men around about and put pressure on. If the batsman then wanted to play a shot and be aggressive towards me, I'd drop a man back to deep mid-wicket or, or, or have a long on. And, and, and Your, just field, place, your field placing was ridiculous, though. It was like... It was like and it was like... Which an inch, an inch, want, one way or the other. Yeah, which blade of grass do you want me on here? I mean, I mean, it's just... It was just... It was, a, it was just... Theater. Even in, even in benefit, I always worried about you fast bowlers about not having cricket awareness that when a bowler bows over the wicket and you pick <laughs> position, that when he goes around the wicket, you know, you don't think about moving a little bit wider, you just stand there. So, therefore, you, you need a little bit of a nudge to go wider. The problem um, was, though, the problem was I'd well, often take the new ball from the pavilion in, and after in my <laughs> second over, all of a sudden, ball's going through to Keith Brown, who's Embers is saying, Give me the ball, and you can see Embers. I mean, I've got some balls here. He's sort of getting in his hand to see whether he can grip it yet. And I was thinking, bloody hell, I'm not going to get many overs here because Gat's at first slip. And the closest <laughs> I got to try to influence Gat was at fine leg. So I had no chance with him in the captain's ear. It's like, oh, get me on, get me on. He's not doing much. Hang on, I'm only in his second over. Give us a chance. I'm getting loose. You've answered um, Catherine Goebel's question about transferring from playing to to written press. She also adds, was there any journalist who helped you get through that? I remember I actually sent you a a copy of the Roger's Thesaurus and somebody (laughs) defaced it and they put where where it's the word for obese. They wrote, wrote, they crossed out obese and wrote wrote gat. (laughs) And then there was... They, they, if, for parsimonious, they crossed out parsimonious and put toughnel and things like that. Um, 
But I don't know who was there anybody who who done the transition who did help you? And you don't have to say me, by the uh, way. And I probably no, wasn't much I, of a help anyway. I, I think when I went there, there was a bit not animosity, but there was a bit of a. I mean, again, I one of the lucky things about it is you walk straight into a good position, and there's a lot of people there who tried to come through local media, writing for local papers, and one day wanted to be the cricket correspondent for a newspaper. So you're sort of flew past a lot of people who put a lot of hard work in. So there was a, there wasn't resentment, but there was also, there was a bit of, hang on, because other players had done it and maybe not treated the job seriously. But the fact that I, I suppose it's the way you work and, and, and did treat it seriously, did work hard, did turn up to all the press conferences, did attend everything that I was supposed to attend. Quickly sort of, um, not one, the, the other cricket journalists over, but, uh, uh, they respected and they were very, very helpful and very um, understanding. And it's it's strange that you and, and Simon, both Simons would know that. I mean, when big stories break, you are, everybody's looking for an exclusive or uh, an angle. But he, at times you're working as a group because everybody's got to go out and try and find, you phone him, you phone him, you phone him, and we'll share the quotes type of thing because uh, you're just trying to get to the bottom of what's taking place. So even though you are working for, individual companies at times you you are working like a team or you do feel that you are a team traveling around the world uh trying to cover the england games and it was it was really good fun i mean the only reason i i sort of packed it in really was was a lifestyle decision just spending so much time away from home your children are suddenly in their early teens you want to spend some time with them uh it's not much fun for your wife is it sort of sat at home whilst you're gallivanting around the world so it was it was a combination of lifestyle and, and the Middlesex job became available. So uh, I changed. It wasn't the fact that I didn't enjoy what I was doing, for sure. Have you ever missed it, Gus? Yeah, a lot of the times when Middlesex have been batting like a bag of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still enjoy sitting down. and if I, I don't do as much now, but a story would break sort of when I... Immediately after I left the Independent, and they'd say, oh, could you do uh, something on, on something? And you'd do it. And to sort of sit down for two or three hours in the afternoon and put 800 words together is something that I enjoyed and I still enjoy, actually. I still enjoy, sounds quite sad, writing sort of reports and things like that because, and you get very anal about punctuation and things. I was never sort of much of a, an English student at school. I've got a C in my O level. Uh, but I now, I hate poor punctuation. I hate texts that aren't punctuated correctly. Uh, so my my years as a journalist sort of um, I think that did, 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 did a lot of there was a lot of good things that came out of it in the way that uh, uh, I don't know the use of language again and and to and all these sort of little things that sort of uh, that you should do and they become quite important. What, How would um, you cope with the uh, World Cup deadline last summer, Gus? You know that the Super over and the you know in the in the gloom, <laughs> the late finish at Lords, where you didn't quite know it was going. Well, at one stage, it was going clearly New Zealand's way, wasn't it? And then obviously England had that dramatic victory. How do you cope with that? that lots, of re lots of rewrites and good subs. <laughs> <laughs> last summer, Embers can come in on this as well. What what was the what was the most uh, dramatic, exciting for you? What what engaged you most? Ben Stokes is miracle of Headingley that last day or the World Cup final. What, 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 you know, when you look at those two events, which, which, should, which should you prefer or which, which, you know, got you going most out of those two? I was a guest of the MCC for the World Cup final, which was just an amazing day. 
but I just yeah. sat in the corner of our, our lounge and sort of thinking the test match against Australia was going to be over and just watching the last wicket. And then my wife was in one corner, my son was in the other, and I was sort of by the door just because I'd been outside doing bits and pieces. And we just sat there for however long it was, an hour or so. No one said a word to each other. It was just transfixed by genius, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, to see Ben Stokes play as he played then was just was genius. It was it was a true. It's a bigger test of him than the World Cup, even though I mean you can't belittle the World Cup win, which is unbelievable. But uh, what he produced at Headingley that after that day was just stunning, absolutely stunning. You were just watching a. You knew you were watching a great moment in the history of the game, really, or a great hour in the history of the game. Yeah, and you could also argue as well that the I mean the World Cup final I mean it, it, it threatened to be a damp squib, didn't it, for a, for a long time. I mean New Zealand batted quite slowly. They got a score on the ball. They were very pragmatic. England really struggled to come to terms with the pitch. There was that weight of expectation, and then it did it did come alive in that last well almost I mean almost in the last over really with that deflection that went for you know allowed England to get six runs. Whereas Headingley was there was something. I don't know. There was something sort of otherworldly about Headingley that you'll you'll ne- never experience again. I think in a, in a strange way, the noise of the crowd. You're there. The noise of the crowd. People having sort of the day out of their lives. I knew. I know they were at Lords as well, but in a way, it wasn't. It wasn't a great match. The, the World Cup final it was a fantastic conclusion. A test for me is almost. You're in the car. You're driving around, and they, and it, whether you're listening to Test Match Bash and, and and a repeat of the commentary sort of has appeared and. The hairs on your neck stand up more when Jonathan Agnew was describing, I think, it, who was the bowler? Uh, was it uh, Cummins running into bowling Cummins, yeah. yeah. Than, than the run out. It's one of those moments where you just, and, and, and the roar and the reaction, it was just, that was a, that was, that was brilliant sort of, uh, yeah. Theatre, yeah. Yeah. Um, but just going back, Embers, you're back with us, I think. Um, just going back to the World Cup final, we were talking about the, the, the tension there. You uh, actually um, had had an incredibly calm demeanour. I remember this one game, uh, a game against, a one-day match against Zimbabwe for Middlesex, uh, in which they required, they were 260 for four, needing one run to win off the last over of a 50-over game. You bowled it, and it was a double-wicket maiden. And I think it was either a tie or we won by one run. Do you think, and you bowled, I remember you bowled six virtually perfect Yorkers. Do you think that that is an underused ball now in one day cricket? Well, I think everyone, you know, former players that watch the game feel that there are enough, there, there are not enough Yorkers bowled towards the end of the innings, particularly in 2020 cricket. And I still think if, if, if a side needs 18 or 20 runs to win, it's still the best option to win the game as opposed to bowling the ball back of a length and being able to get hit 360 out of the ground. The Zimbabwe situation, game, yeah. I, mm. I think that was more about Zimbabwe cocking it up rather than me bowling a really good last over. Um, and there's there's no way that you could bowl a last over and, and not go for a go for a single single run. I mean, yeah. that's just crazy. But that yeah. was in nineteen that was in nineteen eighty. Yeah. You know, when so when the game has sides moved up a bit, play, I suppose. Yeah, sides did play the game totally different now mm. you know I, 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 every bowler is exposed in one day cricket and, and 2020 cricket in particular embers is a magnificent bowler i mean the control he had what he could do is far higher than so many bowlers of his era and uh, of modern times and i always i talked fondly of a middlesex pre-season tour um obviously money was tight i think we went to jersey or guernsey we had some funny places well valdelobo as well but we won't yeah. talk about that 
No, we've been um, talking about that. <laughs> That's an after hours just conversation. Go on, carry on. We're doing a middle of middle of an innings, sort of working, knocking the spinners around training session at, in in on this pitch, pre early season pitch in, in Jersey or Guernsey, I can't remember it was. So Tufnell and Paul Weeks are bowling, and it's all gone very constructively. We've got a lot out of it. They're knocking it around for five and over, and, and it all looks good. Uh, and eventually we got to the session where actually we could do with a bit more. Could we sort of set up another little scenario? And Weeks had had enough, and Tuff has had enough. So Ember said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll bowl. So anyway, he's come on, and he's bowled six overs, three for seven or something like that, and completely buggered the session up. The batsmen didn't know what to do. They've gone from sort of having some idea about what was going on by working tough and all weeks around and, and being constructive to you coming on and just making them look absolutely foolish. And it completely buggered the session up because you were a magnificent bowler. <laughs> well, I, 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 I had my strength was I had good control over line and length. I wasn't a big spinner, um, but I had good control over line and length. Um, right, we've lost him again. I think and it's, it's interesting actually. I mean, if he if he comes if he comes back, maybe this is the technology saying, "Embers, you need to cut your stories a bit shorter." Um, but <laughs> he um, he he did actually. Uh, he, he justifiably would say it was a shame they didn't have DRS in Embers' day because his test wickets, 130 or something test wickets, and only about 10 percent were LBW. Whereas Swan, someone like that, similar kind of bowler. Uh, 30% of his wickets are LBW playing in a DRS era. So he justifiably, I mean, I can still see Embers now actually appealing for LBW when a, a, got a batsman just blocked it and hit on the pad, didn't really move his feet much, hit right in front of middle, and the umpire was sort of giving it not out because of this, the stride for some pathetic reason. And Embers is, you know, he's, he, we can't, this is a family show, so we can't say what he actually said, but. I mean, it, it, there was a well, lot of air. He always sort of said, if if that was a CB, you'd have got that. It'd have been given out. That's what is his line. Yeah. And he used to, not in an aggressive, horrible way. He'd be in front of the beat every other week now, though, because you can't say a word to an umpire. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine him in his Tourette's syndrome now. He'd be, he'd, you'd have been, <laughs> he'd have been banned you know, long ago, wouldn't he? He'd have had so many demerit points. Um, just for sort of little sly, sly comments. Um, let, let Gus, can we? We I asked you to pose a question. Um, we should give people mm. a bit of time because we've probably got another ten minutes. We we started a bit late, so probably got about another ten minutes. Um, have, have, you've got a question. The, the idea of this question is something that you can't look up, hopefully, and we'll give you ten, fifty, five, ten minutes to to answer it. And then if somebody gets it right, the first person to get it right wins. Uh, this week, we're, we're going to give you a special prize. This is the prize this week. This is genuine, you know, £50 note. That's for the person who gets the, the answer first, provided you can send us your bank details uh, or your, um, you know, some kind of way of getting hold of you. Anyway, we'll, we'll ask you for an email address later. But, what, Gus, what is your question? Well, I'm a bit worried now. This is a bit too random. So it, well, That's it all right, because we can roll my... over if it... If the people don't get it this yeah, week, no one we gets can roll it. roll over to next week. Yeah. I mean, T Twenty is talked about as a form of the game that only started in two thousand and two, but of course, it was a form of the game that we played as kids at school. And uh, in 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 Harrow, there was a competition called the Mayor of Harrow's, uh, which was an evening twenty over knockabout. Um, uh, I played in the final for that for Stanmore. I can't remember the exact year, but it when I was in my sort of late teens, and it was on a Thursday evening at Harrow Town. I took five for 25 in six overs, uh, yet Stanmore lost the game. 
because you could bowl six overs. I don't know. It was, that's, that's the way that it was sort of. But which side did Stanmore lose to in that match? So it's okay. something that's quite sort of. Is that too random, yours? Well, no, I, I don't think so. Um, so how many? Um, it was. A, it was a well known. It was a well known T Twenty <laughs> side in 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 Harrow that used in... to play at uh, recreational ground. Right. Okay. Um, um, and so it was a well-known side in Harrow that played in a recreational ground. This is, but they weren't a Middlesex League team or whatever. No, they're um, a West Indian side. Okay. Right. So um, see if anybody can um, can uh, can come up with that answer. Um, Embers <laughs> Embers says he's still here. I think I, got, I don't know. I got to invite him back again or something. Um, I'll try. Uh, yeah, he's oh. reconnect. I don't know. I don't know what's happened to him. Um, so, um, well, Simon, you owe someone some money. Has somebody got it already? <laughs> Who's got it? Derek Tomlin or Jacob Matthews? Derek Tomlin. Derek, Derek Tomlin, Tomlin. Well done. Is uh, Star- think- and, the, and the answer is Starlight. Starlight. Yeah, which was probably you. You gave it away a bit because they're probably they're probably about the only West Indian team in West London, weren't they? Okay. Well, uh, so Derek, Derek Tomlin, who 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 got that answer correct? Uh, brilliant. Um, well done for for your knowledge. Not Tom. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> Derek was the organizer of the competition. Oh God! I know. Oh, I know sorry, Derek. I didn't realize that. I know. I Derek. see. Well, that's okay. <laughs> So that's Stanmore. all right. It's lucky, lucky, thank God he was on. Derek, make sure you ask your your next week when we get a Stuart Broad or a Joe Root on. Um, please make sure you get all your league colleagues on as well, so we get more numbers. We want more people. We've done really well, actually. We've got eighty people tonight. Thank you very much, everybody, for for joining. But we want to double it and triple it uh, because uh, little announcement here. Uh, subsequently, we're going to do this every Thursday night. And we're going to be raising money for the PCA fund, or it's, it's actually now called the Professional Cricketers Trust, which is a fund to help uh, disabled or uh, people, cricketers who fall on hard times or people who've got injured and in some way and, have, and are unable to work or are in uh, suffering you know, bad depression or whatever. So uh, we are going to start raising money on this site each week for the Professional Cricketers Trust. And I'll make sure that's clear on social media and on, on various other platforms so everybody knows about it. But, uh, Derek, try and get as many of your colleagues on as possible. Because, Gus, actually, um, you know, serious point for a minute. Um, you are, I know, concerned to an extent about how players are going to be this winter with no opportunity to go away, uh, you know, possibly difficulty sort of getting out that much under new lockdown rules, which obviously have just been introduced in, in in London. So is that a concern and what kind of things are you going to do? It is. And um, I mean, normally, so players meet up in March, they're all excited, had a winter away, looking forward to the summer. By October, the end of the season, they've had enough of it, need some space. They go away on holiday for two weeks in October. They have a week messing around northwest London and in November they start training again. Uh, after the season we've had, they've not had enough of each other. They wanted the season to continue when it ended in September, at the end of September, early October. Uh, they can't get away in October. Uh, there's limited stuff of what they can do now around their home in October. And, and they're very keen for almost us to be organising things and getting things going. But 
So I think we're going to have to work hard. Our counties are going to have to work hard, and they should be working hard to look after the players, to make sure they're engaged, uh, to give them stuff to do. And um, and it's not all about training. I mean, we've got a lunch um, where a couple few players are coming. Uh, we're trying to set lunches up and things like that. Obviously, what we can do is is limited at the moment, but um, to do social things as and when we can, as as well as physical preparation for for the coming season. So. Uh, we had, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we've, I, I don't know whether some players have struggled around the country or not, but um, fortunately, uh, most of our players seem in reasonable, reasonable shape and, and we want that to continue. Just about the, the winter ahead, actually, I've got some, some breaking news that the uh, Pakistan Cricket Board has invited England to play a, a white ball tour to Pakistan during the early part of twenty. 21 so presumably in 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 january um it's obviously got to be looked at and all sorts of things have got to be uh, got to happen before it does happen um the ecb says we'll be liaising with the pakistan cricket board as well as our other partners over the coming weeks to work through these considerations before a final decision will be taken in due course so um, just the possibility there of england returning to to play international cricket in in Pakistan, of course, Pakistan came over to England this summer, and which you know, the, the English game was hugely grateful for that happening, and you know it made, made a huge financial dif- difference. But the possibility of even going to Pakistan for some white ball cricket in the, in the I, new year, I think the winter, from what I gather, there's obviously the IPLs. How long is it going for? About another month. Is it, it finals on the tenth of November? Tenth of November. England are then going to South Africa or due to go to South Africa. Aren't so we they? think that's yeah. we think that's not that's uncertain now though. November, December, then in January, I think it's Sri Lanka. Yeah, but that's India, that's uncertain it? as well. I mean, the Sri Lanka tour is uncertain because the Sri Lanka government want everybody to isolate for two weeks before when they arrive, and the ECB are not necessarily going to agree to that. And Pakistan look as if they might want to step in instead of the South Africa tour instead of the Sri Lanka tour. Uh, Simon, having delivered that piece of news, you you back up what uh, Jacob Matthews said. Simon, there he says, I wanted to say Simon Mann is the most well-informed commentator, which shows he he knows what he's talking about. But then he says, and Simon Hughes' cricket knowledge is second to none, so uh, maybe not. Um, and also, I just want to point out that Derek, who won that uh, that prize, Derek Tomlin has said. Uh, after saying he was the organiser of the competition, he says, please give the 50 quid to the Ruth Strauss Foundation. So that's a brilliant effort. Um, so no, no, thank Derek. you very much, uh, Derek, you, Derek, for that. We will do that for sure. And we'll try and get Straussy on as well, if he'll actually get him to answer any of his texts. Um, he, he's not he's not that good at answering. So um, now, Gus, you, the other thing I'll ask you is probably me. Um, <laughs> Gus, one other question I had for you, which I don't know if you had time to do this, um, a, a favourite piece of memorabilia maybe. I don't know. I've got, let's say, as you can see in the shelves behind me, there's lots of clutter and stuff. I mean, I've just looked in my cupboard there and there's a couple of caps there, just uh, an English nice. cap, um, sort of from my early days. And this is a cap I love. It's, it's sort of almost caps. Caps are a big thing to me because caps, at the end of your career, your cap, your collection of caps will show where you've been, what you've achieved, who you played for. And it will sort of, and, and each of the club caps tells a story. And the older and tattier the caps are, uh, the better stories they have, and and this is a sort of cap that it's a, it was an England touring cap. Yeah. All of a sudden, we went through this stage where they were like those. They weren't traditional caps. They were, uh, but they weren't the sort of mm. plastic uh, things we had. I don't know that these caps were produced, and 
that was one I wore on two or three England tours. So it's pretty old and tatty and, and knackered. And I suppose that tells, well, days when you were <laughs> fitter, healthier and... <laughs> and uh, days and, when you yeah, were fitter and, and healthier. And a lot no, better shape I... than you are now. So my dad used to look after us. That was a ball I got a hat-trick with against Sussex in the Benson Edges game in 1988. There are other balls here. Actually, that was excellent. The ball I got five for against the West Indies in. Excellent. You've been tampering with that a bit, haven't you? You scratched that. No, you lifted, you lifted the ball the same. That's how it was <laughs> after the game. Shh. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And then these brilliant. balls with huge seams that were used in 98. Um, people wonder why I did well in the West Indies in 98. It's because they had an old stock of balls that had huge seams on them. Mm. Uh, and you can probably see. Yeah, you can. You can there. see, definitely, yeah, how much bigger. It's fatter, isn't it? And yeah. it's like a piece of rope that going around the middle of the ball. It was, and that's why I was effective there mm. rather than other places. Probably. Okay. Oh, brilliant. Well done. Um, listen, I think we should call it a close. I'm sure everyone's ready for their dinner now. So um, uh, I think we've, we, we, we're done, actually, aren't we? Um, just sort of, so just to sum up, um, we are looking to do this every Thursday from now on, from seven o'clock, unless you suddenly all complain on the chat that it's the bad time. But hopefully Thursday nights is the best time. We want to try and get this conversation going. Let's get lots of different guests on, some current players, some ex-players, uh, and, and just get give you the, the opportunity to ask questions, maybe even come up on screen as Embers did there with his headset, which maybe needs a bit of, of attention. Um, Gus, thank you very much for your time tonight. Um, just what, what what's in store for you over the next couple of weeks uh contracts um <laughs> right i suppose we're trying to work out the finances and the position that we're in and what we can or can't cannot commit to really um mm. moving forward so i suppose are, you've had to deal with the one or two releases have you i mean players that have um come to the end of their contracts and you're not going to renew them sort of thing only one really this year uh right. so Mm. We've sort of we've got Managed a lot of players up them. at the end of next year, and right. it's yeah. which ones we look to extend and which ones we can't because I think a lot of counties are going to be looking at their finances quite closely and hoping if if there are no crowds next year, um, there's going to be some real tough decisions to make. I feel so it's preparing for those really so that you've got a bit of flexibility um, should crowds not be allowed. If crowds are back in. And uh, hopefully that'll be the case then. I think everybody can move along with a lot more confidence. But at this moment in time, everybody's uh, quite wary of where they're going to be in, in a year's time. Really. Right. OK, well, thanks. Um, listen, thanks for everybody uh, that, that's turned up tonight. Um, you all seem to have enjoyed it. Rob Kelly says Thursday at 7 p.m. is good. So glad to know that. Steve Parry, great chat tonight. Thank you all. Uh, we've had uh, messages from Neil, from Stu. From Jeff, well stayed, says great session chap. So really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, this is just a little advert for the current issue of the Cricketer magazine, which, as you can see, features uh, our friend Sir Geoffrey um, as the, the, the cover uh, feature. He's 80 next week. So the podcast, our analyst podcast, will be the second part of his interview, which is coming up uh, probably on Monday. I'll release that. And we'll also put this together as a podcast as well. So if you haven't heard all of it or you missed some of it or whatever, um, hopefully we'll upload that later as well. Anyway, Gus, thank you very much for your time and 
your contributions tonight. Uh, I know there's been no crowds at, at cricket this year, so there's a little bit of applause for you. And uh, we'll just say goodbye. And as I said to you before, 7pm every Thursday night is what we're doing uh, from now on. The Analyst Inside Cricket, the virtual cricket club. So please tell your friends about it. Um, men and women and boys and girls. We want as many people as possible on here. Look at Gus with his England cap on. Doesn't he look fantastic? Gus, thank you very much for allowing me to get the Middlesex sweater on again for uh, uh, the first time for a long time. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us and join us at this time again next week. See you Goodbye. then. Bye. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Podcast Network.